Well, I don't know what your favourite parts of the Bible are, but uh, for what it's worth, um, I'll tell you mine. Much as I uh, love the Psalms and uh, I love the uh, epistles of the Apostle Paul, uh, I love the kind of great kind of theological texts, I, uh, I love the kind of uh, strong promises of God, the parts of the Bible that I most enjoy reading uh, the stories of people who clearly love God and are definitely loved by Him, but everything seems to go wrong in their lives. Anyone else like those stories? One other person. Well, perhaps the two of us need to explain ourselves here. I don't know about you, Dave, but the reason I like those passages isn't because I take some kind of morbid pleasure in other people's misfortune. Uh, I, I don't know about you. No, 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 uh, you're with me here. Certainly don't enjoy seeing people suffer. No, 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 no. But as I think back over some of the toughest times in my life, the loneliness I experienced when uh, first planting this church, the pain of walking through a miscarriage, the confusion when I was off work for three months with chronic back pain and knew that I needed urgent surgery but for whatever reason I just couldn't access the right treatment. The the, the shock and the sense of loss when my dad died really quite suddenly at the end of last year. As I think back over some of those experiences, I've got to be honest and say that there were times in the midst of all of that where I struggled with doubt Doubts about my own personal ability to keep going. Doubts that God was in control. And if he was in control, doubts about his goodness and that he was really for me. Which is why some of my favorite parts of the Bible are stories about people who clearly love God and are definitely loved by him and yet they experience some of the same frustrations and some of the same confusion that I experience. Because even though there's no simple answer, there's no 30-minute counselling session that will suddenly resolve everything, even though this sermon right now isn't going to get you a job or get you a better job or get you married or change your marriage or get your school, uh, your, your kids into the schools you want or get your kids behaving better than they do right now or solve all of your financial problems or deal with all of your past. These passages show us that through it all there is a confidence that we can have even through those times, that God is still with us. It's not like the problems we're facing mean that He is against us. And importantly, we also don't have to associate the difficulties of life with some kind of deficiency in the character of God. Actually, it's more reflection on the brokenness of the world we live in. Now, The stories that we're going to be focusing in on this morning illustrates all of this 
and even more. If you want to follow along, the story is found in Luke chapter 7. While you're finding it, let me very quickly try and catch you up with the background, the context to this story. It all begins, uh, actually before this story begins, but it begins with uh, a guy called King Herod the Great. Uh, The name was somewhat ironic because, if truth be told, he really wasn't a great guy. He had a whole bunch of wives, murdered two of them. He also murdered three of his sons and one of his mothers-in-law. Now, you might have an awkward relationship with your mother-in-law. I'd still contend that murdering her is a little extreme. This is the same Herod who sent the soldiers into Bethlehem to slaughter all the babies when he heard the rumor that a new king had been born there. That This was perfectly in keeping with his character. He was an evil evil man. In fact, he was so evil that when he realized that he was about to die, he had his soldiers round up all the leading citizens and imprison them. And then on the day that he actually died, the soldiers were ordered to execute all of the leading citizens to ensure that his death was greeted with widespread mourning through the nation. Now, after he died, the kingdom was split between two of his remaining sons. And these two sons, along with a third son, are part of the story we're going to be looking at today. To confuse matters slightly, they're all called Herod. The other key player in the story is a niece of Herod, and her name is Herodias. Herodias fell in love with one of her cousins, Herod, and they had a daughter called, any guesses? Uh, good guess, but actually it was Salome. Uh, no, no reason at all why you would have known that. Uh, now, uh, are you following all of this? It gets even more confusing because Herodias then fell in love with her husband's brother. So uh, she was married to Herod and fell in love with Herod and ran off with the other Herod to Galilee. And they lived in this magnificent palace as king and queen over Galilee. Uh, and everything's going wonderfully. Everything's going swimmingly well for them until the entrance of the person that we're really going to be focusing in on today. His name was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, you might be familiar with his background. He was the cousin of Jesus, and God sent John ahead of Jesus to, if you like, prepare the way for him. His message was a very simple one. He went around telling people to just knock it off. Whatever you're doing wrong, just stop doing it. It's like wherever he went, he told people to repent. He told people to turn from living their way and told them to start living God's way. And the reason he told people to repent and to turn to God was that God was about to do something very, very new, and he wanted everyone to be ready for it. And as long as there was sin in their lives, they wouldn't be ready. And so he was like this in-your-face kind of guy. And he ended up being very much a hero of all the common people because he was afraid of nobody. He was absolutely fearless. He'd just say what was on his mind, no matter what the consequences. Problem was, when Herodias moved into the palace with the new king Herod, it was very much against the Jewish law. And although none of the Herods were Jews, it was offensive to the Jewish people. And so John the Baptist began preaching out loud in public, in the public square, against the sin of Herodias for running off and marrying her husband's brother. Now when Herodias hears of this, she goes straight to her husband 
and she says, look, we, we must do something about this. We've got to get John the Baptist out of the way. And uh, her husband agrees because he's concerned that John might lead something of a public uprising. So he seizes John and throws him into prison. Now, this is kind of tough on a number of different levels. You see, John the Baptist had been sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And he'd very much done that. One day Jesus walks up and and John the Baptist shouts out at the top of his voice, you know the one I've been telling you about? Here he is, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the whole world. Here he is. John actually announced the arrival of the promised Messiah. It's like he had a whole lot more insight than Jesus' own disciples. Another day, John said to his own followers, look, really appreciate you following me, but you need to follow Jesus. He's way greater than I am. Another time, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, came to John and asked whether, in fact, he was the Messiah. And whereas I might have just kind of played along for a little while and tried to milk it ever so slightly, he answered them straight back, no, 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 it's not me. One's coming after me who is way greater than me. I'm not even worthy to lace his sandals. It's like John had done everything God had asked him to do and some. He he was courageous, he was faith-filled, he was humble, he was this phenomenal prophet, this remarkable preacher, yet all the time he refused to take glory to himself. He knew that it was all about Jesus. And now he's in prison for doing the right thing. So if ever there was a time for a miracle, surely this was it. And yet, John was left to rot away in prison. Now, while he was in prison, John had friends who would occasionally come and give him information about what Jesus was doing in the outside world. So John had heard the reports that Jesus was out there healing the sick left, right and centre. It's like Jesus was doing all all sorts of things for complete and utter strangers, but he wasn't doing anything for his own family. He wasn't doing anything for his own cousin. And so John began to have second thoughts about Jesus. And that is where we pick up this story. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? I imagine they're like, John, do you really want us to ask him that? I mean, John, you're the one who told us he was the one. And John's going, I know, but if truth be told, I'm just struggling with doubt right now. Imagine them going, but whoa, hold on a moment. You've just heard the stories of what he's doing out there. Yeah, but I just need a little bit of extra assurance right now. Verse 20. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting 
or should we keep looking for someone else? Now here's why this is so important for us. It's interesting how whenever our circumstances take a sudden change, either for the better or for the worse, it can impact our personal confidence in God. And I don't think any of us are immune from this. I don't know, maybe a while ago you went away to college and perhaps that time was the lowest in terms of your faith. You had more fun than ever and less faith than ever. You had no dependence on God because you felt like you didn't need God. He was very much an inconvenience. What happened? Sudden change of environment, sudden change of circumstances. It's like, there goes your faith. Maybe you moved to Birmingham and got your first real job. And now you find yourself earning more money than you've ever had before. And you're surrounded by people with a complete different set of values to the ones that you grew up with. And all of a sudden, the things that were important to you aren't so important anymore. Your faith is impacted. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're more like John the Baptist in this story we're looking at today. Suddenly things aren't so good for you. You've gone a long time without a good job. Your your health issues are beginning to take their toll. God's not answering your prayers for your kids. You're still single or your marriage is wearing you down and you wish you were still single. Your, Your circumstances take a turn for the worse and your faith is impacted. It's like somehow God becomes different because our circumstances are different. Although doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of logical sense. It's real, isn't it? And maybe you're embarrassed to admit it in public, but you need a little help. You need some kind of a sign. You need a word from God. You need some personal assurance right now. You need to know that it's not all a lie. It's not all a figment of your imagination because it's not working for you. Now, before we jump back into the story, I need to just say this. I'll say it because I care enough for you to say the tough things at times. I think there is something very self-centered, something very selfish about losing faith in God when our circumstances go bad. I mean, isn't it interesting, for example, that when we hear on the news about an earthquake or a famine or a tsunami that takes the lives of hundreds of people and wrecks the future of thousands more, our response is one of horror, and rightly so. And so perhaps we pray for them. Maybe we give financially to them, to the whole relief effort. But it doesn't ultimately shatter our belief in God. See, when, when you go through a hard time, I pray. But when I go through a hard time, I begin to doubt. 
Now, why is that? Why is it that I lose faith when God appears inattentive to my happiness, but not yours? In other words, when you go through a tough time, I'm incredibly sorry for you, and I will pray, and I will try to be there as much as I can, but ultimately, I don't go home and lose my faith over it. Why is it that in a season of spiritual dryness and inactivity by God in our lives personally, that we find ourselves so prone to our faith eroding? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it happens, doesn't it? Oh, why? I think part of it is this. That in a season of pain... When we go through a period of turmoil, when we're facing seemingly insurmountable difficulty, we tend to shrink right down to the size of us. Our lives and our worldview shrink right down to the size of me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Because you know as well as I do that there's a certain amount of pain that makes it very hard to care about anyone or anything else. There's a point at which you can be in so much agony, whether it's physically or emotionally or mentally, that you find yourself unable to care for anyone but yourself. It's the nature of pain. It shrinks us down to the size of us. And so consequently, here's John the Baptist, with everything he's seen, with all the things he's experienced, everything he knows, and suddenly his world is no bigger than his prison cell, and he begins to doubt. I think we can learn a whole lot from John here. John's got doubts, serious doubts, and instead of giving in to his doubts, he doubts his doubts. He's going to himself, look, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense to me. That This is messing with my head. That This isn't working like I thought it should. And instead of sitting on his doubts and letting those doubts ultimately derail his faith, he goes, no, I'm going to doubt my doubts and I'm going to send word to Jesus to try and get some clarity here. And Jesus' response is so incredibly amazing and so incredibly relevant, I think, to all of us. Let me tell you what Jesus doesn't say. John's friends come up to Jesus, tell him that John, his cousin, is in prison. He's a little bit confused by what's going on. I know it's a little bit embarrassing, but John's beginning to wonder if he's made a mistake about you. He's beginning to have doubts that you are who he thought you were. Here's what Jesus doesn't say. Of course I'm the one. I just sent word back to him, sort his life out. It turned him he was right all along. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, yeah, I'm the one. And tell him, I'm going to break him out doesn't say that either. Here's the message he sends back to John the Baptist. And I think this is for each of us when 
we begin to doubt God. Verse 22, and he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. Because John can't see and hear past the prison he's in. He's struggling to see beyond his personal circumstances. So you've got to go back and tell him what you hear and see. You've got to tell him of the activity of God outside of his prison cell. Because John's a prisoner to what he can hear and what he can see. It's like his prison cell has shrunk him right down to that size. His vision is no larger than his pain. And so it's no wonder he's beginning to have these doubts. So you need to go and try and expand his vision for him. Then Jesus lists the things he wants them to report. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then get this, I don't quite know how to communicate this next bit so you get it. Now, I wish I could kind of blow it right up so, so you wouldn't miss this, so, so you would never ever forget it. Jesus says, here's the most important thing. Please, whatever you do, make sure you tell John this. Verse 23, tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. God blesses those who do not turn away because of me what? Is Jesus implying here that he might actually do things, or at least allow things, that might ultimately cause us to stumble or even fall away? I think that's exactly what he's saying, which is why it's so important we hear this message. God blesses those who don't fall away because of anything Jesus has or hasn't done in their lives. And so Jesus knows that John is in prison. He knows that his situation is getting worse. He knows that John is slowly losing his faith. And Jesus knows that ultimately it's down to him. It's because Jesus has left him there. He hasn't rescued him. He hasn't even come to visit him in prison. All of which can make you kind of wonder, well, doesn't Jesus like John? I mean, has John done something wrong? Has he done something to annoy Jesus? Is he being punished for some reason? Just listen to what Jesus has to say about John. Down to verse 28, he says, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. So Jesus, you're saying that John is perhaps the greatest guy who's ever lived so far, but despite that, you're going to leave him in prison? Jesus responds, yeah, and, and please tell him to hang on in there. 
Tell him not to lose his face just because I've chosen not to bail him out of prison. Now, whichever way you look at this, it's pretty tough, isn't it? It's like John was going to be in prison no matter how much faith he had, no matter how hard he prayed, no matter how much he fasted, no matter how obedient he was to God. He was in prison because it was part of God's plan for him. And Jesus knew that it would be hard for him to maintain his faith, but even so, he chose, for whatever reason, not to rescue him. Let me tell you why I think this is actually good news for us today. It means this. Your personal circumstances either right now or at any point in your life, your personal circumstances do not necessarily correspond with how God feels about you. And you mustn't ever lose sight of that. Because like John the Baptist, when we find ourselves in a dry season, when we're in the wilderness, so to speak, when it feels like God has forgotten us, we can draw the conclusion that my circumstances reflect how God feels about me. And God says categorically, no, they don't. Please, don't ever draw that conclusion. Proof of how God feels about you lies in what happened on the cross when Jesus willingly chose to overcome the scorn and the shame and the anguish and the pain and the horror of separation from his Father. And he chose to carry our shame and our pain, to bear the brunt for our sin and our wrongdoing against his Father. He carried it all for us. He willingly chose to do that for us. Proof of how God feels about you lies in what happened at the cross, not what's happening right now at school, not what's happening at home, not what's not happening at work or in your love life or with your kids. Please, don't make the mistake of hanging your faith on what God appears to be doing or not doing in your life at any given moment in time. Can I tell you my great fear for you? My great fear is that your current experience of Jesus might not be enough to sustain your faith when you hit difficulty or pain or tragedy. I think there's this wrong idea that we've got to get past somehow. We've got to get past this idea that the whole goal of Christianity is to get an easy life. That as long as things are going well for us, then God is with us and everything's cool. Listen, if our faith rests on our personal circumstances, then we're in big, big trouble. The good news of the gospel isn't that we get a perfect partner 
and angelic kids and a nice house and a fast car and a successful career. Now, it's nice when those things happen, but it's not promised. The good news of the gospel is that we get Jesus, not a list of rules and regulations, not a meeting once a week, not a new moral code, not a whole load of religious rituals. We get Jesus. It's all about knowing him. And if that doesn't sound like particularly good news to you where you're at right now, I'd humbly suggest you don't know him well enough right now. Few people have known Jesus better than the Apostle Paul. Just listen to what he said. Philippians 3 verse 8. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. It's like even when everything is going wrong, and you read the New Testament, I mean a whole lot went wrong for Paul. Even when everything's gone wrong, he's enough. He sustains us. And all of this, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that tragedy lands. You get a phone call. The car wreck is your child's car wreck. The cancer is your spouse's cancer. All of a sudden, you're like, Hallelujah! Isn't God great? Not saying that. I'm saying, through the deepest possible pain, through, through the tears just streaming down your face, in faith we cry out, He's enough. God is enough. And that through the pain, in faith, I say he will sustain us. So what do you do with your doubts? What do you do when things aren't working out as you would like them to as you, or as you assumed they would? What, what do you do when God seems absent, when he seems pretty silent? Well, first of all, we follow John's example and we doubt our doubts and we go to Jesus with them. It's okay to do that. Jesus doesn't criticize John for bringing him his doubts. I'm pleading with you. If you've got some doubts of your own, please don't keep them to yourself. I want to assure you, this is a safe place to be honest about the things that you are wrestling with, the things that you are struggling with. Please, follow John's example. Doubt your doubts. Go to Jesus with them. Second, if we're willing to come to Jesus, actually, I think he'd give us pretty much the same advice that he gave John. He'd say, look, you need to look outside your immediate circumstance right now and reflect a bit more on the activity of God. 
look at what he's doing in the church. Look at the people who are being saved. Look at the lives that are being changed. Reflect on those times when God did come through for you in the past because what's happening now doesn't discount the reality of answered prayers in the past. That difficult patch you had in your marriage and God came through for you. When you had a difficult time as a teenager and God broke in and just transformed your life. All those past occurrences, all that past activity of God was real. It was true. And so you need to look outside your current prison and remember. And you take courage from the fact that God was real then and He's just as real now even if he's not expressing his reality in the way you would like him to. And so rather than running from him, you run towards him. And then third, here's the best part. If you haven't been paying attention thus far, please listen to this. (laughs) Jesus reaches way beyond the first century context and I think speaks directly into our lives today. And he gives us this vital message. Here it is. God blesses all those who do not turn away because of me. God blesses. He does good to. He honors. He rewards those who do not turn away, those who don't stumble, those who refuse to lose faith, those who don't give up hope because of me. It's like all the time God is paying attention. Might not seem like it, but he does notice. He knows your circumstances. There's the promise that if you'll remain faithful in spite of what Jesus hasn't done for you lately, In spite of the fact that nothing seems to be changing for you, he sees right into the heart of your situation and says, please don't give up. I'm going to bless those of you who remain faithful and refuse to turn away because of me. You know, the story doesn't actually end well for John. Remember what happens? One of the Herods has a birthday. Herodias sends her daughter from a different marriage to dance for Herod and his friends. It was quite some dance because Herod offers her whatever she asks for up to half his kingdom. She goes away and asks her mum's advice. Herodias tells her, you ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. And because Herod didn't want to lose face with his friends, John literally lost his face. Herod sends his soldiers to the prison. They behead the cousin of Jesus. It's not too long after that that some religious leaders pay to have Jesus himself betrayed and arrested, crucified. And God the Father does nothing to stop that either. But through it all, God didn't move one millimeter off the center of his throne. Because even though he appeared silent and inactive and far away, God was actually right where he wanted to be 
and events unfolded just as he had ordained. And though it wasn't a script that John the Baptist would ever have written for himself. At the end of Jesus' life, if you remember, Jesus actually pleaded with his father if there was any other way. His heavenly father said, no, this is my plan. And now here we are, 2,000 years on, still talking about it, still celebrating it. People's lives are still being transformed by what seemed to be the inactivity and the silence of the very God that John followed. When God's silent, he's not absent. When, when God doesn't appear to be acting, it doesn't mean he isn't acting. Well, and it seems as though God has forgotten. He really hasn't forgotten. It just means that in the midst of those circumstances, we need to bring our doubts to Jesus. And we need to look outside our prison walls and consider what God is doing all around us. And we need to trust him that when he promises that in the end he will bless those who don't fall away because of him, he will bless them, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come. So here's what I want you to take away from this. As things don't necessarily change in your life, as maybe it seems like God isn't listening to your prayers, as God hasn't changed your circumstances, I want to suggest, although it's hard, I know it's hard, you can remain faithful. You, you, you can wake up every single day knowing that God does still love you just as much now as he has ever loved you and ever will love you. Because your current circumstances aren't necessarily a reflection of how God feels about you. I mean, if he allowed the greatest man ever to have lived to rot away in prison before being beheaded, and yet he was family. He was Jesus' own cousin. He was dearly loved by Jesus. Then you never ever have to doubt his love for you, his concern for you his will for you, his plan for you, his ability to take what seems like wasted time and blend it into something far greater than anything you have ever imagined. Because he may be silent, but he isn't absent. And in the end, he will bless all those who don't turn away because of him.